0: Hello and welcome to the Women's Agenda podcast. My name is Angela Priestley and I'm the co-founder and publisher of Women's Agenda. On the podcast today, a special guest, David Laser, author, journalist and writer of the groundbreaking book, Women, Men and the Whole Damn Thing. For a conversation on, uh, well, women, men, and the whole damn thing, really. Five years since stories first broke about Harvey Weinstein's treatment of women in Hollywood, sparking a reckoning on the treatment of women globally. Plus, we'll also share a very special announcement. Thank you for listening. Today's guest marks a bit of a shift in the podcast, which I'll explain a little more in a moment. But first, a little bit more on today's guest. So I had been familiar with David Laser's work as a journalist for a number of years, particularly given the feature magazine and profile pieces he has written, many of which have won and been nominated for many major awards. But David came a little closer into our orbit on women's agenda following an extensive feature piece he wrote for The Good Weekend back in 2018, where he asked, what happens now? in relation to what he described as the Harvey Weinstein effect and the wave of white-hot anger about predatory men that had swept the globe. Later, he published a book by the same name of that magazine piece called Women, Men and the Whole Damn Thing, marking an important study of the patriarchy and toxic masculinity in the age of Me Too. So almost four years since he published that book and more than five years since those Weinstein stories were breaking and we were learning very quickly so much about one of the most powerful men in Hollywood, I asked David what he was thinking about that period where he made the decision to get heavily involved in the Me Too conversation. I asked what he'd write now in further additions to the book, and we discuss rewriting the script of masculinity as well as the ever-changing way social media is changing how we interact. Now, this will be our final interview of this podcast in its current form. Next week, I'm excited to share that my co-host and co-founder, Tyler Lambert, is returning from parental leave And we are kicking off a rejig of the format and even tweaking the name a little. Well, actually, a lot. So you'll see that in your feed next week. But now to my conversation with David. So thank you so much for joining me, David. It's a pleasure. I wanted to start. So October marked five years since Me Too. And I did want to start there. So to take you kind of back to 2017 and when these stories were coming out, when like the magnitude of the post-Weinstein thing was sort of coming to life and we started seeing all this activity across social media on Me Too, obviously story after story, it would later become stories here in Australia as well. What were you thinking around that time? And I know you must have been thinking something because obviously you did go on to write that comprehensive essay in in The Good Weekend, which later became a book. So what were you thinking five years ago, back in October?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, at a journalistic level, I was thinking that apart from climate change, this is the biggest or certainly one of the biggest stories in the world. And it was a galvanising, hugely galvanising moment. I mean, to, to literally read and hear uh, the distress signals of millions of women around the world was a shocking galvanizing moment so but from a journalistic point of view it was like my god this is an incredible story like what's going on from a personal point of view it was deeply upsetting you know i i started having conversations as i think many of us did with uh, in my case, with the women in my life, including my daughters, my then 90-year-old mother, um, my female friends, my colleagues, and, and stuff coming out that I kind of thought I knew and, and I obviously didn't know. So I just found this a uh, huge reckoning moment and it was easy to play the man, not the ball. It was easy to kind of just think about Harvey Weinstein and his kind of atrocious behaviour but I'm, I've am i always been interested in a less than ad hominem approach and more of like what is systemically going on. So, yeah, there's some of the things that were going on. And, and of course, I started hearing stories which were just horrific, uh, scarifying a, a, a from people I love and, and thinking, why don't I know this? How come I don't know this? So, yeah.
0: I know you had hesitations about venturing into this topic. And I think initially writing that Good Weekend piece, obviously expanding that out into the book as well. And you had a lot of conversations with with your daughter there. Can you talk us through those hesitations? And I guess I might ask a bit of that five-year question again. Do you have regrets about being that person that, I mean, I'll, I'll use your own words here that I've written down about being the white straight male, I think it was. Do you have any regrets about putting yourself out there as being that person to come out and say, yeah, I want to talk about this and I want to ask these questions and I want to research this further?
1: I don't have any regrets. I mean, it's been uncomfortable uh, at times and it still is because there are really legitimate criticisms of men co-opting the movement or getting involved or being seen to be speaking for women, which I am strenuously, ardently not trying to do, but I get the criticisms. And, you know, I think that you have to be able to cop the criticisms if you're going to be wading into, if you're going to be an author, if you're going to be a journalist, you've got to be able to cop that. It's a very dangerous time in terms of what you can say and how you say it and the language you use and the words you use, and that's become even more so in the last five years. But I don't regret trying to understand what the Me Too movement was and is all about, and I don't regret the efforts that I've put into this in the past five years. You know, I I think this is probably part of your question, of course, my younger daughter, who's deeply political and, you know, she's a strong feminist, as is her sister, as is their mother. You know, she begged me not to wade into this at the beginning, when the editor of Good Weekend, Katrina Strickland, asked me to come back to the magazine and start writing for them again because it had been a number of years since I'd written for Good Weekend, and the discussion then turned to what was the story that I was going to write. And I said, well, the biggest story at the moment is the Me Too movement. And and, and then we had a whole discussion about should a man write about it? Could a man write about it? Should I? Could I? And, you know, Hannah, my younger daughter, said to me, Dad, please don't. I beg you not to. And I said, why? She said, because I don't think you get it. And I said, well, what do you mean you don't think I get it? She said, well, every time we've talked about the Me Too movement, you've said, but, you know, what's this going to do for male-female relations in the workplace? But what's this going to do for everyday flirting? But what about the grey zone? Uh, But what about false accusations? She said, just shut up, Dad, and stop saying but, and listen to what I and millions of women are saying. And don't just listen to us, stand beside us and behind us and bear witness to us. And um, I wanted to be that kind of man that could do that and would do that. And uh, so I've tried to do that.
0: How did she feel about the book? Does she have pride in the work that you've done?
1: I mean, you'd need to ask her. She's in New Mm -hmm. York at the moment, so that (laughs) might be more difficult. But Mm -hmm. she, you know, I mean, she's very proud of Of women men and the whole damn thing and she was a great interlocutor during that process you know I mean dad I think you've got this wrong I think you know she challenged me she still challenges me but I think it'd be fair to say she's very proud of the book and that a man did it and that that man was her father
0: Mm. so for a 2022 edition maybe let's say a 2023 edition of the book maybe there is one in the works I don't know but what kinds of things would you add now because I mean it has been huge shifts in a lot of these conversations and stories not necessarily for the better it's not like we've sort of been on this long kind of road of progress in terms of these discussions if anything I know that some of the men that you write about who were called out in those initial stages some of them are back to work back to their careers and everything some obviously are not but obviously, we've had the pandemic during this period and seen great divides in terms of the shift of uh, unpaid work between men and women and how girls have borne much of the brunt of that. You mentioned climate change at the top of the conversation. You must be thinking about that also and the impact on women and girls too. But I guess there's a lot to take in, as there always was a lot to take in, in terms of the book that you were writing initially back in 2018. But where would you focus now, whether that is a, sec- a different book or whether that is writing an updated version of that book now?
1: I mean, th- thanks for the idea. It's it's a good one, an updated version. Mm. Um, <laughs> well, you know, I mean, oh my God, you just take one aspect of this alone, which is reproductive rights for women in America. Mm. I mean, I could never have imagined in 2018 that, you know, Roe versus Wade would basically be... Sent packing and that states would start introducing laws banning abortion. Mm. I mean, you know, you could do worse than starting there. You could do worse than, you know, the backlash and men's rights activists and religious groups and right-wing groups. And if you look at it just through that lens, it's a very, very, very bleak picture, but at the same time, Since my book's come out, I've been involved with a lot of men who are doing extraordinary work in trying to rewrite the script of masculinity because actually at the core of the whole Me Too movement is actually the way that men behave, the way that men treat women, the inequities are unacceptable and, of course, the violence and that at the worst end of the spectrum that's 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 everything from assault and rape and murder and and the statistics aren't getting any better on that to the other end of the spectrum which is non-disclosure agreements or parental leave or you know the, the load that women carry compared to men but alongside that there are men doing extraordinary things to try and grow, mm. to try and introduce boys and young men to different models of masculinity. And so if I was to balance the ledger and not make the book a total nightmare scape of bleakness and regressiveness, I would bring in these attempts i mean there is a global men's engage alliance it's in 70 countries it's in africa and south asia and you know north america and there are men trying to do things and and become allies to women and take a pro-feminist pro-human rights intersectional view of how men can actually behave and be and and how we can educate boys and and it's So I would want to explore that in more depth too because I think that's, without wanting to gloss over any of the terrible stuff that's happening, I think that we need to hear more about how men can be good allies and how men are trying to be good allies too.
0: Mm, I find this really interesting. You talk about rewriting the script of masculinity and it might be interesting to hear your thoughts on that in a moment. I guess that's probably where I'm going to go in terms of this question. I do have three boys myself, so I am constantly now thinking about this and thinking about this more and more and thinking about the idea of what does it mean to be a good man and listening to different things. I, I believe you quote Liz Plank in your book, and she does a podcast where she's a co-host on a great podcast around this topic also, and I can't remember the name of it, but it's really, really good. And I've only just listened to the first episode, uh, my first episode in that series in the last few weeks where I was like, I really want to come back to this because it's great as a mother to think about these things in terms of it being a parent to young boys there's other things that are kind of coming up in my mind as well. A story in the Sydney Morning Herald today, which spoke about the education levels uh, differing between men and girls, where where girls are actually moving far ahead of boys. And I'm sort of thinking, what what could be the consequences of that? Things like that now and, and later on as well, because we do see it in the US where these growing gaps must be here in Australia as well, between tertiary educated men and women as well. And, you know, what that might mean for the future also. So, all these things going around in my head. And it comes back to, I guess, the idea of masculinity and back to that rewriting that script to ask you, what do you think that script actually reads as now?
1: Well, I think the script is, depending on where you stand, the script is an ancient script Mm. that is still running or it's a script that is changing ever so gradually Mm. or in some places it's changing more rapidly. But the script is basically that to be a man, you don't show your weakness, you don't show your vulnerability, you remain in control and you are less interested in nuance and ambiguity and much more interested in being self-directed and being in control and uh, getting things done. The role of emotions... You know, I mean, how many times have we heard it and seen it? Because we all start out as delicious, tender children with a full range of emotions. That's available to most children uh, unless there's something wrong with them, unless there's some sociopathy or something. But you see boys slowly but surely and inexorably get bullied and shamed and sometimes beaten for displaying the kind of emotions that are normal to being human. Mm. And when you start shaming and bullying those emotions in boys, why should it be any surprise that later in life, if you're in a relationship and things get complex, as they invariably will, that you don't know how to deal with your emotions and so you will strike out. Often the only kind of lens through which you can show emotion is, is through rage or sex. And you can turn your rage on those you purport to love or you can turn it on yourself or both. And so that script is a suffocating script. It is a tyranny which hurts all of us. And so there are many places in the world where that script is still alive and well, and it's on display daily in the news. The incel movement, the men's rights activists, you know, men like Jordan Peterson who have, you know, millions of young men sort of subscribing to this anti-feminist, anti-quote-unquote woke agenda. We can see that everywhere. But... There are also lots of organisations and lots of men who are actually saying, "You know what? To be a man is many things—in class terms, in race terms, in ethnic terms, in economic terms, social terms. Whether you're heteronormative, whether you're gay, whether you, however you identify, it's many, many things. And let's actually look at the playbook for men and see whether it's serving." you because and this is where we have to bring men in I mean I think there's some men we're never going to get to but there are a lot of men who are sitting on the fence and they could go one way or the other they could go the men's rights activist way or they could actually think hold on maybe there's something in this for me maybe my life might be better if I was more allied to even if it's personal to my wife or to my daughters or to my mother or my sister you know because there's a moral case for it, but then you might just do the Scott Morrison personal case and just say, well, Jenny told me. Um, or there might be the economic case. I don't care what the case is, as long as you actually, I think it's the attempt to call men in, mm. not, not to shame them, but to call them in, call them out for egregious behaviour, but also try and call them in.
0: Mm, mm. I think that's very true because there is that sense of losing that man. You refer to a broken man in your book as well at one point, and you know that there is nothing good about a broken man. And I quote uh, a line from this around um that Scott Galloway said, who's a podcaster in the US, who noted the fact that you know when there is a mass shooting in the US, you can pretty much automatically assume what that person looks like and and who they are and where they've come from, and perhaps you can start to make some assumptions about their their childhood and their background and what's what's happened there and that most of the time you you might be right. It's it's not going to be a 50-year-old woman who has done it. You kind of know what the perpetrator is going to look like and then it comes back to the idea where have these people been so broken along the way? What has happened? And so how can we ensure that we are making sure that, like you said, that people feel included into these conversations? And I do sometimes feel that many of us don't necessarily see the comments where men can go in terms of the comments that will be starting to be made about um, Amber Heard, the comments that get made about Brittany Higgins or the comments that get made about the Australian Diamonds netball team, given what happened last week with the sponsorship. And if you're in your circles, you sort of think that a lot of people are kind of, you know, saying very respectful things about these and, and they're not necessarily because you just need to go to social media and to certain parts of social media and you'll see, just how horrific the conversation can get and just where it's lacking respect, uh, where it's crossed total line from lacking respect and where it, you come back and you think, well, well, these are men and possibly boys who you will encounter every day on the street who probably go to jobs, who probably have families and things like that, but then they're still saying these things in these these spaces. And that's where I go to. I think what what has happened there that we've made them – feel so out of this other part of the conversation that that is where they're going to. I don't know if this makes any sense at all. But again, all things that I'm very much personally grappling with at the moment, because I guess as a mother of boys as well, you sort of have this this fear. It's like, I I don't want my kids to end up in those spaces. And what can I do to make sure that they don't? But of course, as a parent, sometimes your kids will do everything possible to rebel against anything that you believe in and and think about. So what can be done there?
1: Well, Two words, social media. I mean, Twitter is an anger video game. There's no place for nuance. But I think once we developed this technology, this digital technology, the possibilities of consensus, of an adherence to a common set of facts or principles or truths, basically was just eliminated. And, you know, so everybody's got their their smartphones and young boys can you know watch porn and watch the degradation of women you know as a kind of part of their daily menu so I, I don't know how we hold the tide back because it's coming at us from all directions it's coming at us from through social media and the, the misogyny that is is on social media is just it, it's it's extraordinary. In fact, I'm, I, I kind of decided I was going to close my Twitter account today. I just don't want to be part of it anymore. But that's not going to help a sort of systemic structural kind of thing that you're asking. You know, I wrote a piece for Good Weekend with Natasia Chrysanthos, the education writer for The Herald last year on sexual assault in, amongst private boys' schools. And, you know, this was following the Chanel Contos petition. I interviewed parents and I interviewed psychologists and I interviewed school principals, we did, and young women and young men. And, you know, the parents are saying, well, it's the school's responsibility and the schools are saying, well, it's the parents' responsibility. And psychologists are saying, well, it's both responsibility, but it's also, you know, pornography. And if if you can't shut that down, of course you are going to get this idea that women are there for the taking, right? And, and you know, I spoke to one young man, goes to a private boys' school in Sydney and a female friend of his was sick and he took flowers to her in hospital and some of the other guys found out and they started calling him simp. I hadn't heard that term before, but it's a really derogatory term and it's kind of like being called a sissy or a puff or a faggot, right? It means you respect women. And he got kind of done over by his mates for being a simp, and I said to him, "How did that make you feel?" He said, "Well, I'd never do it again, right?" And I heard that story, and I just, I just got I was so depressed. I thought, "This is happening at one of the most expensive elite schools in Sydney. How on earth are we going to change that culture?" So. You know, every time I, you know, I don't want to sound like a Pollyanna when I say men are doing good things, because at the same time, the the challenges before us are enormous. Uh, and so I really welcome, you know, having a conversation like this with you, Angela, because it requires time. It requires the kind of time we've spent now talking to unpack a lot of the stuff that requires unpacking and even then we're not going to get to it because it's it's so complex i call it in my book the wound of the world and it is the wound of the world it is patriarchy kind of had a beginning um, it was a beginning that took place over hundreds of years but there was a time in, in human history where we did worship you know goddesses europe had no gods prior to 2500 bc and the earth was considered and still is in many parts of the world, as feminine. And that started to change. With that change, women began to lose their legal and political and sexual rights. And I think that desecration of the feminine has brought us to this moment. The three waves, maybe four waves of feminism is part of the pushback. But now it's time, I think mean, that the next, I would like to see the next stage of the feminist movement is actually men challenging the script of masculinity and becoming allies to women and and actually calling it out and rewriting the whole playbook for what it means to be a man.
0: Mm. The Wound of the World, I think that's an excellent, if not also tragic, way to put it uh, and I think, I mean, you've brought up social media there which would be a whole other conversation and, again, in terms of your book Five Years On would be a whole many, many chapters and changes around just, you know, what, has shifted around social media. And again, the very different impacts that I think are kind of coming out in terms of girls and boys there, it's impacting girls, it's impacting boys and and women and men too, in terms of some of the detrimental aspects of social media. Uh, I always think back how once upon a time it was sort of seen, you know, Facebook, Twitter, just this absolute force for good bringing about uh, revolutions in the world, the Arab spring and all that. And just now, you know, where we are now, how much has changed. And I I want to ask one final question. I'm just trying, I I don't know that there's a positive or optimistic answer in this, which I think we just have to deal with, but I guess what I see now in, if I might call it a post-Me Too world, I don't know, but what I see now is social media has definitely contributed a lot to this, is extremes, extremes on all ends. And I just wonder if that means that we're actually in a much more dangerous place now than even we were five years ago.
1: (sighs) Well, Margaret Atwood said this herself, you know, in, a, in an age of extremes, extremists always win. Okay, I'm going to strike a note for the positive. I just spent five weeks, six weeks overseas. I didn't read a newspaper. And I think that when you, I mean, I'm a journalist, as you know, and I've been part of the media for over 40 years. If you are just getting your information from social media or even mainstream media, you are going to see the worst examples of human behaviour. But there's a lot of other things you could be reading or watching, the ancient scriptures, the philosophers, the poets. And actually, you know, I, I do believe that the world is full of beautiful people, that there are millions upon millions of people doing extraordinary things, heroic things, um, gracious things every day that we don't hear about. And I think we really have to remind ourselves of that. And maybe that's a kind of stubborn optimism. Uh, that's the term that Christiana Figueres, you know, who led the Paris Climate Accords, you know, uses. But um, rather than naive optimism, I, I think that I, I want to stubbornly cling to the idea that most people are essentially good and they want to be good. They want to be loved and they want to love. So I think we should all be weaning ourselves a little off this poison drip of social media. Mm.
0: David, thank you so much for joining me and thank you for sharing that piece of optimism as well. I believe that too and I might sound like a total pessimist here but um, I I certainly have that and I certainly do see a lot of good, particularly in people like you and some of the people that you've also mentioned as examples as well. And I'll go back to the climate crisis because you started it there and obviously you've ended on that wonderful quote from Christiana as well. So I think that we we absolutely have to have that and to be working together in terms of the challenge ahead. So thank you very much. Beautiful book. I hope you write the updated version or I wait to see the next book topic and your next Good Weekend article as well. So thank you very much, David.
1: Thanks, Angela. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Thank you for listening to the Women's Agenda podcast and a very big thank you to David Lacer for writing this book and for sharing generously his time to tell us more about it, including what he might write this many years later. A reminder that you can catch the stories that we do discuss on the podcast, usually in some shape or form, on our website, womensagenda.com.au. You can also go and check out David's book, which you'll find on Amazon, you'll find online, you'll find it on an e-reader. I'm sure you can find it still in bookstores as well. Women, men, and the whole damn thing. A reminder again that you'll be hearing a slightly different version of this podcast in your feed next week. So please check back in for that. And I'm very happy to have Tyler Lambert joining me again. Thank you for listening.